If Peter were going to write a title to chapter 3, he probably would have written, A Funny Thing Happened to Me on the Way to the Temple. You see, he was going up to the temple to pray. This was not a staged event. He wasn't looking for somebody that he could lift up who was lame from birth. It wasn't staged. It wasn't planned. It wasn't contrived. He just happened to be going up to the temple to pray. And God put a needy person in his path that he felt led to minister to. He said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he lifted him to his feet. And that man had no idea that that day when they brought him out to the gate beautiful that he'd be walking home. In fact, he thought he'd never walk again. He'd probably lost all hope. Jesus no doubt passed him by because he sat at the gate beautiful of the temple, a common entry for every man who would go into the temple. And Jesus went into the temple. And he probably lost all hope. But that day, he not only walked home, but we see him walking and leaping and praising God. Now again, Peter and John saw no inconsistency being Christians to go to the Jewish place of worship because they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, they continued to go to the temple and the synagogue until they were kicked out. Until the Jews finally said, look, we don't want you around anymore. You're causing division amongst us Jews. You're preaching a Messiah we don't believe in. Get out. But it was not something that they were looking for. It was something that the Jews positioned themselves against to the Christians during this course. Chapter 3 deals with the miracle that started that division between Jew and Christian in the early church. As we said last week, there were two basic groups in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the legalists. The Sadducees were the um, elite kind of people who did not believe in miracles, did not believe in a resurrection. They were rationalists. They rationalized every spiritual thing away. They were the philosophers of that day. Every time a miracle was done in the Old Testament, they said, now there must be some healthy scientific explanation for this because we believe miracles don't happen. And because of that, there was a problem because there was a notable miracle in Acts chapter 3 and several later on. And the disciples preached the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, that ticked the Sadducees off because they didn't believe in that. And the fact that there was a man lame from birth running around the temple didn't help their cause. It's someone they knew was lame from birth. They'd seen him every day walking into the temple. This guy running around leaping and praising God didn't help them. It disproved their position. And they disapproved of it. It diminished their authority. And now they feel the rope of authority slipping from their hands. And because that jealousness sets in, they will expel the Christians eventually from Jerusalem. Brings up a point about persecution. Although we don't experience it that much in the United States, not as much as Christians in China or in other parts of the world, there is persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. We're told in Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, you don't have to go looking for it. If you live godly, it's going to happen. You don't have to 
solicit persecution. You don't have to say, you know what, I'm kind of, I want, I feel like being persecuted today. Well, you don't have to worry. If you're living godly, eventually you'll get persecuted. I'll never forget. I had a Jehovah Witness come to my door one time, knocked on the door, and I was trying to be as, well, as nice as I could. See, a lot of you laugh because you think, how nice is that? And I was trying to share with them, and we were discussing the Scriptures together. And eventually we came to a point where I shared with them out of 1 John and the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And I said, you can tell a false prophet because First John says he doesn't believe Jesus has come in the flesh. And you frankly deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. And I think you're a false prophet. And he stood at my door and he said, Oh, thank you, God, for letting me be persecuted for righteousness' sake. I said, you know what? You're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're being persecuted for false doctrine's sake. And that's a big difference. Now, even a Christian can be persecuted for the wrong reasons. I worked with a friend in California in a hospital in Orange County. He was a newly converted believer. He was an orderly. He was a very good orderly. He'd always get my patients when I wanted to until he became a Christian. Then he wanted to witness to everybody in the hospital, and he would take time out of his job to share the gospel. And so you'd have patients blocked up because he'd be on the other side of the hospital stopping the whole thing to witness to somebody. And people were getting angry at him because he wasn't doing his job. I finally had to go to him and say, just as a brother in the Lord, let me exhort you that when they're giving you money to work eight hours, work. Share the gospel before work, at lunchtime or after work. Or if you have the ability to do it in your work without hindering the work, then do it. But they're not paying you to witness. They're paying you to work. And it's a lousy witness to not work when you should be working. Well, he finally got fired. Now, that's not a very good witness. And that's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake, but for slothfulness' sake. Now, the early church was persecuted as they went their way throughout life and proclaimed the gospel and preached the resurrection. It did not sit well with people. Now, Jesus promised this. He said, I tell you the truth, The one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Now, a lot of times that's not underlined in our Bibles. Are we just kind of read through that? Lands, children, fields, persecution to the age to come, eternal life. Because we would like to think that we'll just be blessed out of our socks going through this life without any kind of conflict. Well, that's not true. Jesus promised that whatever you give up, He's much able to give you above and beyond that, but with persecution. With persecution. Now, back to chapter 3. Peter and John went together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried. 
whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. The man had a congenital anomaly. From his birth, he couldn't walk. His parents no doubt took care of him until the time when he was an adult. And as the custom was, they put him out in public to beg. There was no welfare system like there is today. There was no mandatory governmental subsidy for people like this. They were left at the mercy of the public. They would usually sit at the gates of the city or of a business with their hand out or a little hat or a basket, something to receive money, something to receive alms. There were three cardinal works that the Jews believed was a proof of spiritual life. Number one, prayer. Number two, Fasting and number three, almsgiving. They thought that one of the proofs that a man walks with God is that he gives to the poor. Now, I understand, I know, as well as you know, that we are badgered from every side with pleas for money from every religious cause in the book. Some are very blatant and begging about it and others are a little lower key, but every ministry, every spiritual anything is asking for some kind of financial support, usually. And because there's so much of it, we tend to get sick and tired of hearing about it. In fact, we turn off to it many times. We think, I don't want to hear it again. At the same time, there is a biblical responsibility to care for the work of the gospel and to support it financially. And that can be done in many ways. But the giving of alms to the poor is also something central in the Scripture. In fact, you can't really read a book of the Bible without coming face to face with God's concern for the poor, the underdog, the have-nots. And God made special provision in the Old Testament and held His people accountable for not meeting the needs of the poor throughout the Scripture. In fact, one of the reasons Israel went into captivity is that they failed to care for the poor and the needy. They oppressed the poor. Well, here we see a man at the gate, beautiful, asking alms. The Jews weren't turned off by it because it was the normal thing to do. There's a scripture in the book of Matthew that I want to read to you. You can turn to it if you want. It's in Matthew 6 concerning this. Jesus spoke of giving alms, charitable deeds. He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds or your giving of alms before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father in heaven. Now, he's not telling them to stop giving alms to the poor. He is simply saying, stop doing it with the wrong motivation and don't do it the wrong way. Do it the right way. He naturally assumed that as followers of his, we would be caring for people who have needs. We would be doing charitable deeds. It's not that special Christians do it. It's not for the elite few who have grown to a special echelon in the Lord. It's for everybody. He says, when you do it, do it the right way. 
Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, what Jesus is referring to was a practice that the Jews had in the temple proper. They had a beautiful custom. The theory should have worked, but it didn't because of the heart of man. The theory was this. In a special temple room was a thing called the chamber of the silent. It was for silent, quiet giving. It was a place where you could go and give to the cause of the needy and the poor without being seen by anybody. You'd do it in secret. And you'd put it in this special little box. And if another person was a beggar, needed some financial help, they could go to the priest and they could go into the chamber of the silent. And without having to beg publicly, they could go in and have their needs met. Well, it became the chamber of the not-so-silent. Because people started to give only when there was a crowd. Made sure there was a lot of people. Then the guy would raise his voice. I pledge $2,000 for the poor. And they would give their money quite publicly. Sort of the blowing of the trumpet. In fact, some people actually blew trumpets as the man would walk up to give money into the chamber of the silent. It wasn't very silent. Jesus was denouncing this practice, and it sort of reminds me of some of modern-day practices when it comes to giving money. There is something in the heart of man that wants to be recognized for doing something for God. And it seems that we have pandered to the flesh, saying, we'll tell you what, you know, if you give so much money, we'll put a plaque in the back in the foyer in brass with your name on it, donated by this person. Or perhaps you've heard stuff like this. Now how many tonight will give $1,000 for the Lord's work? Let's see a show of hands. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Stand up. Stand up. Be recognized. Well, that's what Jesus exactly was denouncing. This public demonstration of giving. And perhaps if that Jewish custom in the temple would have been handled correctly, this man who was sitting at the gate beautiful would be getting his need met even in private. It goes to show you, though, that even though there was corruption, Jesus was in control because Jesus had something very special for that man that day. More than financial help, he wanted him to be healed. It says in the book of Proverbs that whoever oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. And he that honors God has mercy on the poor. In verse 6, notice Peter says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. Those are medical terms. Remember who's writing this? Luke. What is he? He's a doctor. And so he wrote with medical terms. And the wording is, the joints were coming into his sockets and snapping into place. Not only did this guy receive strength, but he received immediate coordination to walk. Almost a double miracle. 
those ankle bones snapped into place and he had the coordination to not only walk, but as we see, jump around and praise the Lord. I want you to notice something though. Peter picked the man up first and then he was healed. Now that's the hard part. It's one thing to pray for a person's healing. It's another thing to say, stand up, come on, you're going to walk right now. I know you've never walked before, but do it now. That's a real act of faith. Because what if it doesn't work? And you drop him. And everybody's going to be looking at you. But you see, the step of faith was taken first, then God worked. It wasn't that man's faith, it was a gift of faith that was given to Peter and John. And it was a point of contact. And when that faith was acted upon, God worked. When I first felt like the Lord called me to Albuquerque, I wrote applications, I wrote resumes and filled in applications to all sorts of places all over the city. I sent 30 of them from my home in Southern California. You know, I was expecting, well, you know, the Lord's just going to open the doors. It's just going to be real easy. I'll go with the flow. Well, there was no flow. I didn't hear anything. But I still felt like, you know, I just feel like I need to go out there. At least check it out. So I came out here in March and it was snowing and I told the friend who was with me, you know what? Even if I don't get a job, I feel like God called me here and I'm moving here. And he said, you're going to get married in a few weeks. If you don't have a job, it'd be stupid to move here. Yeah, I know, but I think God's going to do something. And I made the decision. Called up Lenya. We were engaged at the time. See, we got married and a week later we moved here. Called her up and I said, we're moving here. This is, God has something for us. The next morning, I went out and by 12 noon, I had three job offers. I could take my pick. My hours, the salary that was given to me, I took that step. And as I took that step, God began to open the doors. Even as Peter had to lift the man to his feet. And in the name of Jesus Christ, he then walked. In verse 8, it says, So he, leaping up, stood and walked, entering the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. There was a joyful worshiper in the temple that day. Leaping around. I'll tell you what, he'd be kicked out of half the churches today. But this man was excited. He wasn't just about to just sit there and fold his arms. He was excited about what happened to him. You know, every now and then, there will be criticism that is leveled against the body of Christ for showing any kind of excitement for the Lord. If a person raises his hands, I've gotten letters from people say, well, you know, there's just not decorum in the house of God. People are raising. I've even seen a couple people stand and even kneel. What a display that is, drawing attention to themselves. And I agree, some people can draw attention to themselves and they do it for that reason. But you can't judge their motivations. And it's interesting, you will be called fanatics if you display any kind of outward, physical demonstration of love for the Lord. If you said, oh, praise the Lord, people say, fanatic. You raise your hands, fanatic. As if there's nothing exciting in God. Yet the same crowd will jump up and down at a Lobos game. And they'll call you a fanatic. They'll go to a concert and do the boogaloo out in the audience and they'll call you a fanatic. It's an absolutely ridiculous position. 
And the only person who could take the position is someone who's been drained of every emotion in their body. There's nothing wrong with getting excited about the Lord. Now, don't put it on. Don't put on a show. Some people put on a show. Some people feel like they have to jump and they have to yell. And a lot of times it's not even real. But if it is real, and for this guy it was real, the guy was stoked. He's jumping. He's leaping. And he's praising the Lord. And notice he goes into the temple first. He doesn't run home. He goes into the temple. He's going to give God thanks. I think that's so important. Remember the story of the ten lepers in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17? And when they saw Jesus, they cried out saying, Master, Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. That's very revealing. They said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The word Master means chief commander. They were saying, we understand that you have authority over every disease, over every sickness, over death itself and life. You are the chief commander. Jesus, have mercy on us. So Jesus said, you know, do what the law says. And as they went, believing, in essence, they were healed. But then it says that only one returned to give thanks. Now, you'd expect all of them, if they were healed, that there would be this excitement that comes over them. They're lepers. Only one gave thanks. And Jesus said, "Um, didn't I heal ten of you guys? Where are the other nine? Only one-tenth returned to give God thanks. And I bet that that ratio hasn't changed much these days. We often overlook the things that God does for us. We are quick to pray, but very slow to praise the Lord. Instead, we complain if things don't flow exactly the way we want them to. How come my car got a flat tire? Well, you're lucky you have a car, aren't you? Oh, my foot, it's always aching. What kind of a God of love? Hey, a lot of people don't have feet. We're so quick to pray, but so slow to give thanks and praise when God does something for us. We overlook it. It says in the book of Psalms, Oh, that men would thank God for His goodness and the wonderful works to the children of men. Where are the other nine? They never came back. I found out that the guy who wrote that old hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. How many have heard that hymn? Now thank we all our God. I don't want to sing the whole thing for you. With hearts and minds and voices, something like that. It's a beautiful hymn of thanksgiving. It was written by a pastor who during the war averaged 40 funerals a day, including his own wife. And during the midst of that painful experience, he wrote, Now thank we all our God with hearts and minds and voices who wondrous things has done. And a beautiful, beautiful hymn of thanksgiving to God, thanking God for His goodness. Look at verse 10. Or verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging, begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Look at that word, knew. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms. They passed this guy every single day. And they knew that he was healed. I have an important point to make about this. 
When God heals you, you know it. You don't have to psych yourself out to keep believing it. It's real. It's done. And the way some people speak about healing, you'd think God does an awfully poor job. They still have the symptoms. They say, well, those are just from the devil, those symptoms. I just got to confess my healing and rebuke the symptoms because I really am healed right now. Really, why are you still coughing then? Well, it's just the devil, but I really am healed. I mean, it's ridiculous. I know a guy who broke his ankle, was in a cast, he was limping, he had crutches on. I said, what happened? He said, I broke my ankle, but I'm healed. I said, why are you on crutches then? Well, I'm claiming my healing. I know I'm already healed. Listen, when God heals you, you know it. And to go around telling people you're healed when you're not is is a horrible testimony to the world. They're going to think, your God doesn't work so hot. I mean, that, you call that a healing? I don't think so. When God heals, you know it. You don't have to go around psyching yourself out to hold on to it. It is a done deal. Nobody in the New Testament went around hobbling and claiming it. It was done. They knew that God touched them. God healed them. And everybody knew it at this point. Now, as the lame man who was healed, and, and get this, held on to Peter and John. Oh, man. Never has he seen guys like this in his life who reached out their hands, lifted him up, and now he's healed, and so he's clinging on to them. He held on to Peter and John. All of the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us as though... By our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. Now suddenly, Peter and John are very popular in Jerusalem. And here's where the danger lies. You see, God is invisible. We are visible. And any time God uses us to perform any kind of spiritual work, be it a healing, be it preaching the gospel and some people respond, or anything spiritual, anything involving the exercise of a spiritual gift, oftentimes we become the focal point. And people will grab a hold of us as though we're something special. Because God is invisible. We're tangible. They can see you. Here's a guy who's been lame from birth. And Peter said, look at us. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And he lifted him up. That man saw another person lift him to his feet and it blew his mind. Or picture it even in a more dramatic way. Someone who's blind all of his life. And somebody touches those eyes and let's say God heals that person. The first person that those blind eyes will fixate on will be the person who God used. And oftentimes there is then that elevation. Oh, it's you that did this. You're a special servant. You're a special person. You're so wonderful. See, this is the temptation. This is where the danger lies because the temptation is to believe all of those things they tell us. I guess I am kind of special. You know, I always thought these hands had something. These are special hands. You see, he was in a very dangerous, temptable kind of a position as people are looking toward him, but Even if God uses you in a special way, guess what? 
you are just the instrument. And you are not to take any praise for anything as if it's from you. Well, yes, it is because of me. I am holy. I am spiritual. I have prayed a lot lately. You can't take any glory. You're just the instrument. Don't you think it would be ludicrous if after a surgical operation, the doctor walks into the recovery room, he still has his gloves on, he has a couple instruments, a scalpel in this hand, a retractor in this hand, the patient wakes up, opens his eyes and says, Thank you, scalpel. You did such a wonderful job of cutting and thank you, retractors. You were so wonderful in opening up the flesh and suture. Oh, how you brought the skin together. The doctor would say, excuse me, I was the one that did it. These were simply my tools. Don't give any praise to them. And so when we give praise to God's instruments, his tools, his people, we're detracting glory from him. We're just instruments. We're tools. And anyone who's used of God just proves that there's a great God because we are all people with feet of clay. God has no special people. No such thing. For God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.29 And Paul himself in that same book was fearful that because of the things he was doing in running the race after the Lord, that he would get to a place where God would put him on the shelf, where he would become disqualified because he was getting too puffed up. Now he's in a very tempting position. All the people are now looking at Peter and John. He's got a crowd. He's got the people. And they're gaping at him. Peter could have said, John, get the ushers. Let's do an offering right now. Great time. I mean, the people are keyed up. They're really ready to give at this point. But he didn't do that. Instead, he asked two questions. And notice how he handled this limelight. You know, I love it. He didn't say, men of Israel, it's because I pray more than you do and because I'm closer to God than you are that these things happened. I'm just spiritual. And if you only could pray like I pray, and if you could be as holy as I am, you would see the same things. Look again at that refreshing response. Men of Israel... Why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk. Consider that first question. Why do you marvel at this? You men of Israel. What is the big deal, men of Israel, that a lame man is walking? Remember, you're men of Israel. You're not Gentiles. You're men of Israel. You have a history book of God parting the Red Sea, opening up the Jordan, causing plagues to come out of heaven, feeding your forefathers in the wilderness for 40 years, bringing water out of the rock. There's more miracles in your history than anyone else. Why would you, of all people, marvel at this? You should be in tune and in touch with God's power. But you see, the fact that they marveled at this was an indication that they had lost the consciousness of the power and the greatness of God. And the degree that we marvel at miracles is an indication of how much we have lost the consciousness of the greatness and the power of God. We pray for a healing. And we stand on it. And the guy gets healed. And we go, I don't believe it. It was amazing. You see, we pray like men of faith, but we live like mice. We're so surprised. 
It reminds me of a story in the book of Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison. And it says the church prayed earnestly for his release. And guess what? He got released. An angel sprung him. And so Peter goes to the house where they're having the prayer meeting, knocks on the door. A girl comes out and sees it's Peter. And she thinks, no. She goes in and says, Peter's out there. And these guys are praying, Lord, please get Peter. We believe you. Excuse me, guys, Peter's out there. Oh, get out of here. That's a ghost or something. You're nuts. In fact, they said, they said you're crazy. She goes back and Peter's saying, open up. She goes back and says, it's Peter out there. They couldn't believe it. Now here they're praying for his release and God answers their prayer. They go, I just can't believe it. You men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Have you lost the consciousness of God's power? God's greatness? God's glory? Oh, you see, when we see a miracle, and we've prayed for a miracle, we've prayed for God to intervene. We should give God the glory, but hey, for God, that's just normal operating procedure. Remember Sarah in the Old Testament? When Sarah and Abraham entertained those strangers and one of them said, by this time next year, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a baby. Remember what Sarah did? She laughed. And as she did it in her tent when she thought no one was hearing, she was on the other side of the camp and she went, (laughs) she laughed within herself. And one of the visitors said, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah, why did you laugh? She goes, I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did laugh. Is anything too hard for the Lord? As soon as she laughed, she was bombed with a question that eroded the hardness and the callousness of her heart. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? You see, she was focusing on the fact that it's impossible for her to have a baby. Look, I'm 90 years old. I've passed the age of having kids now, okay? And so she laughed at that. She was focusing on herself and the improbability and the impossibility. And God said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Getting her thoughts back on the ability of God. That's a question that I ask you tonight. Is there anything too hard for God to do in your life? You think of a possible fulfillment to a promise and you might laugh. Oh, I doubt God would ever do that. But is there anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing at all. You know, I would recommend that next time you face a difficult problem, it's a practice I've done especially around here. It's such a beautiful sky. When I'm facing a perplexing situation, it always helps me to take a walk and to do one of these numbers, just to look up at the sky. On a clear night around here, go out to the woods and just check out those stars and think, your dad made that. He spoke it into existence. And consider his power. Consider the vastness of our universe. You know, what you see is just a a tiny portion of what's out there. You know, you look up and you see the stars, you think, oh, neat little lights in the sky. But do you realize that even our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is 10,000 light years in width and 100,000 light years in length? Which means if you could find a ray of light and strap yourself to it, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it's pretty fast. In one second, you could do seven and a half times around the earth. (laughs) One second. Traveling that fast. Traveling on a beam of light, you could go past the moon in 
one and a half seconds, past the sun in seven and a half seconds, you'd eventually get in two and a half years to the nearest neighbor star, Alpha Centauri. Two and a half years, traveling at 186,000 miles a second. If you started on one width end of that universe, it would take you 10,000 years traveling that fast to get to the other end. And if you tried to traverse the length, it would take you 100,000 years going 186,000 miles a second. Now, that's just the Milky Way galaxy. There's 100 billion other galaxies out there. God did that. Think of 100 billion galaxies, and one tiny little speck of dust is called the Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years long by 10,000 light years wide. And in a little corner of the Milky Way galaxy is a little tiny star called the sun. And there's specks of dust revolving around it. One of those specks is called the earth. On that earth is biosphere. Life lives. One tiny form of life is called man. Think about that next time you have a problem. I serve a big God. The Bible says He measures the universe with the span of His hand. God, how big is the universe? About that big. About that big to me. And God cares for you, and God's concerned about you, and He's numbered every hair on your head. Now, for some of you, that's fewer than others. And the job's a little bit easier. And every time you comb your hair, it's a new number, isn't it? But God has personal concern for you, and yet He inhabits all of eternity. And as you look at the skies and you consider the heavens, consider what Jeremiah said. When God spoke to him one time, he finally said, Ah, Lord God, you made the heavens by your great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. That was his conclusion as he was doing that one night. You know, as I consider the heavens, there's nothing too hard for you. Or as it would say in Hebrew, No, nothing, absolutely nothing for you is extraordinarily surpassing. Trust the Lord. There's nothing too hard for him. Second question that Peter asked them is, why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? You see, again, this shows how low they have gotten in their spiritual condition. Not only have they left the consciousness of the power of God, but they're so ready to lift up a man in God's place and give a man glory and honor. They're men of Israel. They shouldn't be doing that. They're gazing or staring at Peter and John as if these guys are really holy. Don't you love that response? Hey, why do you look at us? We didn't do anything. God did it. Now, some might object and say, yeah, but it was their prayer. Big deal. Anybody can do that. Because you're asking God to do it. You're not doing anything. Oh, God, do this. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. It takes faith. You say, well, see there again, it's their faith. Well, yes and no. It was their faith, but they didn't even take credit for their faith. Read on. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, 
of which we are witnesses. Notice this. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. They couldn't even take credit for the faith. Oh, yes, it was their faith, but they say, look, God gave us this faith. It comes through Him. They couldn't even take credit for that. Well, I'm such a great man of faith. No, God gave me this faith and He gets the glory. It was a gift of faith. There's always the danger of being put up on a pedestal. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's really the point that He's getting to. Now, I want to touch on something before we come to a close. What Peter and John experienced is called a gift of faith. It is different than just the average faith that the average believer has. I believe that there is a supernatural gift of faith. As one Greek scholar translates it, wonder-working faith. It's the ability to believe God for things that most people won't. It's the ability to see the adequacy of God in impossible situations and tap into it and hold on to it and get it done. Now, everybody has saving faith who is a Christian. All of us have faith. In fact, every human being to some degree has faith in something. I've heard people say, I have no faith. Yeah, you do. If you didn't have faith, you couldn't get out of bed in the morning and go start your car. You think, oh, I, it won't work. I don't believe it will work. If you had no faith, there's a lot of things you wouldn't do. You'd veg out all day in your bed. you got some kind of faith. And if you're a Christian, you've got saving faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. But there is a gift of faith, that supernatural ability to tap into God's resources and stay on top of the promise and not waver. And God will work through those people. Now, if you don't have it, you don't have it. It says God has given to everyone a measure of faith. A measure of faith. The measure that He wants you to have. Now, you can increase your faith. Your faith can grow like a muscle. It can develop. But not everybody has the same degree of faith. There are notable people of faith. I've told you before about George Mueller, who started an orphanage. And over a period of several years, he fed 10,000 orphans in England. Totally on faith. He just believed God called him to do it. He opened up an orphanage, and guess what? He never once asked for money. In fact, he said it was a sin to ask for money. In fact, one time he withheld the books from his board because they were in financial problems, lest that be construed, misconstrued, as asking for money. He refused to let people know the needs and God miraculously provided. And he kept a diary that has six, oh no, 3,000 pages where he has written specific answers to 15,000 prayers that he trusted God for, that he believed that God would do incredible things. One of his stories is in his 70s, he's traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. He's going from England to Quebec, up in Canada. It was Wednesday. Fog had settled in over the ocean, and the boat is just going along at a snail's pace. And he goes up to the captain. He says, Captain, I have to get to Quebec by Saturday. I've never missed an appointment in 60 or in 40-some years, 50 years. He says, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Mueller, but... The fog is so dense that we're just going to have to go at this pace. And 
Bueller said, well, if this boat can't take me to Quebec, God will find another way. But I've never missed an appointment and I'm going to be there Saturday in Quebec. And then he said, I'm going below to pray that God will lift this fog. And the captain said, the fog is the thickest kind I've ever seen. I don't think it's going to happen. And Mueller said, my eye is not on the fog. It's on the Lord who created it. And so he was going down below and the captain said, would you like me to join you in prayer? And he said, no, you would hinder my prayers because you don't believe God can do it. I don't want you to pray with me. And he went down below and it is recorded in his journal that within a matter of several minutes, the fog began to clear and he made his appointment in Quebec that Saturday. Now you think that's an incredible thing. Read his autobiography sometime. George Mueller, great man of faith. And in his name, verse 16, through faith in his name, which has made this man strong, whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken of by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God has made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. He preached the gospel to them. He used the miracle to glorify God, to preach a message of repentance and a message of promise that the time of restoration would come for their souls. And notice in closing how well this man knew the Word of God. Now this is Peter. Now remember Peter. Those years that he walked with Jesus. Mr. Imperfect, foot in the mouth, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, Peter. The man who had a zealous spirit, but not according to knowledge. He's quoting the Scripture so beautiful. A man or a woman used by God is a man and a woman who spends time in the Word of God. You want to be used by God powerfully? You want to see God move through your life in a mighty way? At work? When you share with people who don't know the Lord in your family, in your community, in your neighborhood, be a person of the Word. Because as you invest and store God's Word in your heart, God will give you opportunities to let it go out. But you can't give what you don't have. And Peter had it in his heart. He stored it up. And God opened the doors for him to share it. Let's pray.
We are so grateful, Lord, that you have a concern for ailing humanity. Here's a guy who sat at the temple, thought it was all over. You came and showed him different. You came to restore life. And you're in the business of stretching your hand out to people who are in hopeless conditions, tiresome, troublesome situations, and getting them on their feet. We know that all men and women are lame from birth. You've come to set us free and to set us walking straight. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith Increase our compassion upon people who are in need. Give us a heart, Lord, for the people who have not, the poor. That we might give what we have and what we don't have to trust You for the rest. Take, Lord, the littleness that we have and enlarge it. We know that none of us are anything more special than anyone else. For you said in your book of 1 John that you have given an anointing to all your children. I pray, Lord, that we might function in that unction. In Jesus' name.